You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to yell at me when I do. Um, and that's just a general, right? A general notion is to what extent when, right, when things go wrong, so usually often things go wrong and you can identify there are the, right, there are the leaders and the followers. And to what way are they, are they responsible for each other? Um, so sometimes we talk about, often we talk about the question of whether the followers are responsible for themselves or whether we can attribute the followers' failings to the leader, right? This is part of the, this is part of the notion of, um, you know, of whether you can, there's a defense um, saying you were just following orders, um, right? With the halachic question of whether we say something called or whether you, whether there's a notion of, of agency for, um, for doing something that is against Torah. Um, and in general, halachic, we paskin no. And that saying that you're an agent um, cannot absolve you from responsibility. And there's even, the, and the debate really is only about whether you can absolve the leader because followers have responsibility for their own actions. So just because somebody tells you to do something, so to what extent are they responsible? It's still your decision. So I want to talk, I want to talk about the, that it seems to me that sometimes um, followers are responsible for their leaders because leaders are constrained uh, by what their, by leaders want power and the way in which leaders um, re- leaders get their power often is by people's willingness to follow them, and so there's a, a sort of a moral dance between leaders and followers, where to, so followers are responsible for their own decisions, but also what orders the followers would follow often determine what what orders the leader will give. Um, there's an extreme version of this in um, right in a, in a non-moral context in the Little Prince. A little prince meets a king who's, who's, who believes he runs the entire universe. And the way he does that is when people refuse to, to uh, obey his orders, he simply orders them to do the other thing, right? I order, you to, I order you to stay. Well, I'm not staying. I'm leaving. Well, then I order you to leave, um, right? So I want to talk about that in the context of Paro and Mitzrayim and talking about, so what, to what extent, not just to what extent are the Egyptians responsible for their own actions, as opposed to Paro being responsible for his own actions, but to what extent are the Mitzrayim responsible for Paro's actions? Okay, now, in order to do that, we have to do, it, we have to set, do a couple of things on background. All right, one thing we have to do on background is to recognize which Paro we're talking about. Um, so Steven Spielberg, I thought, you know, really, when I first saw The, um, the Prince of Egypt, I you thought he got something about the narrative of Shemot that I had not previously understood. Uh, right, if you've, you've all seen the Prince of Egypt, I imagine, and you get what it is, is it's what we call, I think, a buddy movie, right? It's all about the, it's all about these two male characters, and how these two male, and how the, and how the affection and tension between those two male characters drives, uh, right, and the, and the balance between competition and cooperation, right, and um, and ambition, right? All how all those things play out in a in a, in a male male relationship, um, and so the way they solve that, right now. There's a paro who's off-screen, and that's true in Shemot also. The paro who's off-screen is the paro who knew Yosef. And that paro, it, right, that paro never, right, doesn't show up in Sefer Shemot. He shows up, right, he shows up in, in, in Bereshit, and Shemot begins with, Yosef. A new king arises who doesn't know Yosef. So there's an implied previous paro did know Yosef, but here's a new king. Then, okay, what well, the way the movie does it is by, uh, the, movie, the movie implies that 
when that sometime in the reign of that king who didn't know Yosef, he has a son and he adopts right and he adopts Moshe, and so Moshe grows up together with that Paro son, and that Paro becomes the Paro of the Exodus. And so the buddy movie is between Moshe and the son of the Paro, right, and the son of the Paro who uh, right who um, who does who, who's, right, who doesn't who doesn't know Yosef. And the relationship between Moshe and the Pharaoh who does know Yosef is not peers. Sorry, the relationship between Moshe and the original Pharaoh who begins the enslavement is not that of peers, but Moshe is the exceptionally beloved son, even though every right, even though um, even though Pharaoh is enslaves all the Jews. What I want to argue is that um, that's not really the way that the text of Chumash sets it up, although I think it was really a, a brilliant hop and very enormously helpful to me in terms of understanding Shemot to watch the movie. But really, the parallelism that Sefer Shemot sets up is between Moshe and the, paro, and the first Paro, the one who doesn't know Yosef. What I want to do first is I'm going to take you through a vision of what happens to Moshe in Moshe's character development before, um, in the second Perak of Shemot. And then I want to ask a question about that. Um, if we see Perak Aleph and Perak Bet of Shemot as parallel, so what does that say about the Paro of Perak Aleph of Shemot? And then we're going to look back at Perak Aleph. We're going to try and see how we understand that. And then we're going to go to Ramban and we're going to try and process Ramban. I hope there's going to, at that point, up till this point, probably I'm going to be talking um, mostly through his background. When we get to the Ramban, I want to stop after every, pretty much right after uh, every key point Ramban makes and ask you to think about whether you find it convincing as a read of the story. And I think the back, the, the subtext of that is, I don't want to really talk about it explicitly, except insofar as it helps us understand Chumash, is, right, is how does that, does it seem to you as a plausible description of the way in which leaders and followers relate and of the moral constraints on, um, on leaders because right because of their of their followers. So let's start with Perik Bet. I'm going to share my screen, uh, but we're also we're going to be on page two of the Makar- of the Makarot set. Um, uh, do I have it right? Um, always bad at this. Sorry. Um, my screen is not being terribly helpful. Let's make sure of this. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, here. Okay. So now it should work. Um, yeah. Okay, so we're on Peric, right? So Peric Bet, this is the story of Moshe Rabbeinu. So we begin with a narrative section which says, you know, Moshe is born, uh, right? And we have this whole scene where Moshe is discovered by Bat Paro after he's left on the on the side of the river. Um, right, his, his sister is standing there and she tells Paro, right, shall I go and call you? A just happens to be a pregnant, pregnant Jewish woman. And Bat Paro says yes, which suggests very strongly, I think you can all you can all read in the story that um, it's very likely that Bat Paro knows exactly what's happening. There isn't so much effort deception going on here, uh, right? She says, um, right, which, wait, because why would there be Dafka be a woman who's nursing? Very likely it's a woman who's just given birth, uh, right? Why would she have extra milk? Very likely because the the child, the child, right, the child who she's been nursing is no longer, right, is not available to her, right? So it's plausible, I think, that Bat Paro understands exactly exactly what's happening. And Moshe is brought to Paro's house. So it's about Paro, right? So Moshe is sent to sent to his to his mother and nurses him when he grows up. Right? When he grows up, so the mother brings him back to Bat Paro, and he becomes Bat Paro's daughter. And she even gives him a name. Uh, right? The name has to be the name is this hybrid between Egyptian and um, and Hebrew. 
because right, she calls it, she calls him Moshe Vatomarkina Mayim Mishisihu. Uh, right, so Moshe is an Egyptian name. Mishisihu is a Hebrew etymology for an Egyptian name. Uh, right, this is the part I always you know, feel it, an obligation to mention that this is the point where the movie The Ten Commandments no, makes no sense. Right, she called him Moses for from the waters she drew him. She should have called him Drew. Uh, right, translating names is right. Translating names is very is very problematic. Um, but okay, right. So Moshe grows up in this very ambiguous form. Right, the movie tells raises some questions about where the movie assumes Moshe doesn't remember anything. I don't know that it's obvious Moshe doesn't remember anything because he's brought. It depends on what age he's brought. It says by Um It doesn't say by Yigomal the way it does by Yitzchak that he's weaned. So we really don't know. Right, we really don't know what age he is brought about. Okay. Next scene, right? That's your little card from the old silent movies, right? It, hap- right? it happens at some other later point. So he grows up again. He goes out to his brothers. And he sees their suffering. And he sees an Egyptian man striking a Jewish man. Now the word is, right, brings you back to and so now the question is, who are the who are the achim to which uh, to whom to whom Moshe is going out? Um, so I usually illustrate this. I forgot to bring the book up. I have a, a Haggadah uh, by Yossi Rosenstein, which is this beautiful painting of a man uh, wearing um, right, wearing what is you know very plain sort of kitta like robes, standing over a grave, and in the grave is buried an Egyptian headdress. And the caption on the on the picture is Vayachet Hamitzri. Right, he's right. It's when right, uh, Moshe kills the Egyptian later. Moshe killed the Egyptian within him. Uh, right, just the headdress is buried, and the um, right, the meaning of it, right, which Ibn Ezra picks up is that when Moshe first comes out, we don't know who his Achim are. His Achim could be the Egyptians. They could be. The, they could be the Jews. He sees, but he sees the Jews suffering, and all of a sudden, he sees an Egyptian man striking a Jewish man. And really, you know, the, probably the best way of reading this is that he's in the process of striking a Jewish man, um, right? And all of a sudden, he realizes that the Echav changed, or he sees an Egyptian striking a Jewish man, and he realizes that could be me, right? He, right? That could be me, which means he already has an awareness somehow, right? The story takes begins with Moshe's a, Moshe has an awareness that he's Jewish, but he hasn't internalized it. And the result of this, uh, the result of this shift, right, where Echav is ambiguous. Echav becomes unambiguous, and now the Ishivri is his brother. Now he looks around and he sees there's no Ish, and it's Ayachet Hamitzri, and he's right, and he buries him. And the next day there are two Anashim Ivrim. Maybe Moshe is one of them, maybe not. And Moshe says to the Brasha, Lama Takeriecha. Right now, all of a sudden, he, right now, all of a sudden, Jews are Reim, and they respond by saying, Mi Samchal Ish. Right. So you see this thing, right? The, the 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 point when Moshe really grows up, he's Vaidal twice, but the point where he really becomes right really becomes an Ish is a point where there's grave ambiguity over whether he is an Egyptian or a Jew. And there's a moment when he sudden right when he acquires his um his adulthood, he realizes that he's Jewish, but the Jews turn against him, which disappoint him, and so in the end he shows up when he runs away, he shows up in Midian, and in Midian he's an Ish Mitzri again. Right, because that's with as far as as far as the as far as the Midianites know, there right, there's nothing distinctively. They don't look at him as a runaway, as a runaway Ivory slave. They look at him as an Ishmitri. Um and that's who he is, so far as we know, right? So far so right, so far as we know until right until 
Melech Mitzrayim dies, right? That's the end of the parsha. When Melech Mitzrayim dies, uh, right, then you have God's recognition of um, God's recognition of what is happening. Okay, here's the big point I want to make about the story of Moshe Rabbeinu. The story of Moshe Rabbeinu is a coming of age story, right? In this, in this parish, and it involves a it involves growth, right? It is a um, it's a story, right? Which is not the distinction that I was taught between a short story and a novel, is that in a, a short story reveals character. A novel develops character, but Chumash writes novels in very in, right, in, in a few sentences. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu grows up and he changes. So the question I want to ask now is: How are we supposed to read the Paro of Perak Aleph? Is Perak Aleph a story which just reveals Paro's character, or is right, or is, is uh, Perak Aleph a story in which Paro changes in some way? Right? Does Paro develop, um, or is Paro really the same person all the way through? Just how he expresses who he is changes. Okay, so now we go back to Perak Aleph of Bereshis. Okay, so we begin with a narrative, right, with the genealogical narrative. Right, this is exactly parallel, right, so you want to follow like, the parallelism, right, so Perak Aleph begins, Perak Bet began with right, so you have two parallel stories, each of them begin by situating the characters, right, by, situ- by situating the characters genealogically. Okay. What happens is, right, so right, so Yaakov comes down with 69 people, Yosef, 70 people, Yosef is already in Mitzrayim, right, the contradiction whether Yosef is the 70th or 71st. Then Yosef and all his brothers and the whole generation die. And B'nai Yisrael, Peruva, Yishutsuva, Yibruva, Yatsubim, Od, Ma'od, Vatimaleha, Aretz, Otam. Okay, when you're, when you're in Chumash, um, right, Chumash is not very uh, clear, deliberately so, uh, about time. So we don't know, right, so we don't know whether is the next thing that happens after Yosef and all his brothers die, or whether it's a caption for what's going to happen throughout the whole story, because if it's really true, the very beginning of the story that B'nai Yisrael already about Timeleha or Sotam, that's a very different kind of story than a claim that B'nai Yisrael were only 70 people, and then they're oppressed and they turn to 600,000, right? So two very different ways of reading the story arc. One is that they're already incredibly numerous, and then we figure out, so what difference does the oppression make when it claims they multiply? Uh, or claiming that this is just the lead, and what happens later is that they, um, right, is that, right, what, now we, now, right, really where our story takes place is between this, this verse and this verse, right? Between the, after Yosef, the old generation dies, right, then a whole lot of things happens, the end of which is, B'nai Yisrael, Peru, and the whole land is filled with them. And that forces you to write into different alter- interpretive options about right? So a new king arises over Egypt who does not know um, who does not know Yosef. So you all know the debate whether it's really a new king or whether it's a, an old king who um, an old king who pretends not to know uh, to know Yosef or really whether it just means that the, that there's a radical shift, um, right, if you like, you like the historicist approach, right, that there's a radical shift in the Egyptian monarchy between uh, Semites who are, right, or, or right, Semites who like, who like Semitic, other Semitic immigrants and, uh, and right, and Egyptians of a different type, right, who, who, right, who, right, who are opposed to, right, who are opposed to immigration, right, a whole, right, but it's, for our purposes, right, what, what I want to ask is, when this new king arises over Egypt, who presumably, uh, deliberately chooses not to know Yosef, is he facing a situation which is just after this verse, right? All that's happened is that there's no individual Yosef around 
or anyone who anyone who had a relationship with Yosef around, to, right, to shape right to shape what's happening, or is he in fact already confronting a situation in which Bnei Israel Peruva in which the Jews are already multiplying, and in ways I have to say that every time I see the word Vayishritzu now, it means something different after I saw Hotel Rwanda, uh, right, where you have this radio where the the genocidal radio radio show is constantly blaring. Uh, the vision, uh, right, of of one one ethnic group in the country being cockroaches. Vayishritzu uh, is a very is a very scary word to me now, uh, but really, it's, when we look at Paro, right, so is Paro really just um, paranoid, or he sees something, right, and he right, and his paranoia, right, which he imagines of Bnei Israel being Vatimalayarosotam, actually is what causes it because it leads to the oppression, which leads to the multiplication, or is Paro facing a very real situation? Uh, which is that the Jews are growing enormously, uh, enormously numerous, and then the question is, okay, that's the situation. What's the proper moral response to the situation? But he's not imagining that something has happened in the period, right? So he, right, he, right, he, he does not have a relationship. He chooses not to have a relationship with the memory of Yosef. And here's what he says to his people. So Vayomer Elamo he says to his people. So now the first, you know, interesting question is. Why does he have to talk to his people? Is that you know, if we if we like if you think of Egypt and this is the Egypt to some extent which Joseph has built in which the king owns all the land except for the land of the Kohanim and the Kohanim never right the Kohanim Mitzrayim you would have expected at the end of Bracious that they're in the story because they're going to play a role they don't ever play a role I know Kohanim or the Kohanim are just living apparently living off on their own land they have no role at all we have Chartumim not Chachamim um, and for some reason this paro who has all the right? Who has all the uh, the power in Egypt? We would think, um, right? Those of you who've seen, you know, the musical when Pharaoh's around, you get down on the ground. <laughs> if, you ever find, if you ever find yourself near Ramesses, get down on your knees. Yet Paro's first thing is to say something to his people, and here's what he says to his people: "Hine am bnei Israel." Here is this nation, bnei Israel. Uh, we don't know if he's hinting something by saying "am" or not, right? As opposed to saying our fellow citizens, the Jews. Rabbi menu. They are more, they are powerful and numerous. So Mimenu, the simple reading is, uh, simple reading is, um, is that um, they're more powerful than us. The, uh, the, kind of, the, the second reading, which shows up often um, Chazal when you read Mimenu, is they have become powerful by taking our stuff. That's what Lavan says, um, right? That's what, that's what Avimelech says to Yitzchak. Like, it sounds to Mimenu Ode, right? So there, there's always a, a, there seems to be a um, another word I'm not looking for a subtext, uh, mimenu meaning that right they they have gotten they have become this and they've unjustly taken it from us. Okay, so what do you do? He says havanit chakmolo. So that's a really interesting word, right? Havanit chakmolo. So it could be that what you're doing is you're reading this in uh, this is all paranoia, and so what he's saying is look they're already more powerful than we are. They control the world. So the only thing we can do is outsmart them. Okay, we have to be more clever, cleverer than cleverer than they are because there is no possible way of beating them through power. Because if we don't pen your bed, let them become even more numerous, right? So here it's, it seems to be that we're leaning towards the paranoid thing because it already says they're Rabbi Menu. So how much bigger, greater can they get? But yeah, right. And then we're not worried about them attacking us directly, but why not if they're already more powerful than us? So if war happens and they right, they will 
be added to our other enemies, and they'll right, and then they'll um, they'll right, they'll war with us. And there's a whole ambiguity about what means. Um, does it mean what we call you know, that they're speaking um, uh, right euphemistically, and it really means that we will be exiled? Um, could it be that? Um, could it be that it means that they will leave the land? So then the question is, why, you know, that doesn't, isn't that what you want? Or could it be, which I think is the, the best explanation, is that it means that we're afraid that Eretz Goshen will secede, right? That, that, right, that we're, worried about, we're worried about them seceding. All right, and it could be that the enemies, right, the enemies who are not mentioned here um, could be, right, if you take the historicist approach, that this is the, right, this is the post-Tixos, whatever, dynasty, so the enemies are presumably the previous monarchy, and right, so right, so this is a new monarchy, and right, so he's afraid of being attacked by the old monarchy, and that might explain to you why the king has to talk to the people, because this is not a secure monarchy, even though the system is set up to centralize all power in the hands of the king. But when you have a shift in monarchy, that can be totally undone, right? For all you know, the barons ruled Bell and he also writing Magna Carta. So right, so could, those are all ways which we can explain the story. So what do you do? So it seems like the the right so Chakmelo, so that could be Chakmelo could be a long term plan, and then we watch that long term plan being carried out, or it could be it leads very directly to the next step. So they put Sarei Misim on them. So Misim is often uh, mistranslated, I believe, as a tax, uh, but Amas seems not, really not to be. A, um, a tax, but really a, a, a labor levy. Um, and what Ramban says, and we're going to be within Ramban, and I think this was also a big thing when I first realized it, Ramban says Egyptian slavery was not uh, the slavery in the sense that we have it in, we had it in the United States, right? Chattel bondage, where X owns Y. It was an obligation to provide a very heavy percentage of your population for the king's, for the king's works. And so this is, right, so, right, so the strategy is Let's put them to work very hard doing stuff for us. And so they build these giant construction constructions, whatever Ramis Gnot are, for Paro. Um, right? I just want to point out that the the, um, the pronouns shift, right? Because there's a new Melech, Vayomer Elamo, he says to his people. And the response to that is Vayasimu, right? There's a plural group who places Saramisim over them. But even though the pe- right, the people, it seems like there's a plural, a plural that puts Saramisim on them, they build Aramis Gnot Leparo, just for Paro. Okay, but the strategy doesn't work because whatever, right? The more you, the more you afflict them, the more they multiply. Right, and that leads to vayakutsu mipnei bnei Israel. So vayakutsu is plural again. So we don't know what, right? So whatever the whatever, the strategy doesn't work to minimize the Jews, but it does work to shift from just a Yosef, who is saying this to his people, to a situation now where the entire people. Have this reaction of revulsion towards Bnei Israel. Okay, so now Mitzrayim is Ma'avid Bnei Israel Befarach, right? So now there's no longer just a group of Sarei Misim. Now Mitzrayim imposes, right, as a, as a unit, imposes Perach on Bnei Israel, right? They, right, they embitter their lives with bricks and all of Adab right? Previously they were doing, previously they were doing construction, right? Aramis Knot Lefaro. Now they have all sorts of right to doing industry. And they're doing right, and they're doing, uh, and they're doing agricultural work, right? So they become much more generalized slaves, it seems, right? Whatever hard work there is to do, um, right? They they make them do it. Here, I think Chazal have a beautiful reading that I mentioned halachic context of a dot parach, which is what you're not allowed to have slaves do. 
halachically, which really obviously comes from here. So that perech, right, means work that breaks you apart. The farech is to break into, right, is, is to is to break into pieces. But Chazal say that doesn't mean that you work harder. What it means is you work purposelessly. Avodat perech, halachically, is if you tell a slave to do something for the sole purpose of demonstrating your superiority as opposed to giving it productively, right? If you give them a task and say, go on doing this task until I come, whether or not it's, right, even if you finished it, right, you have to keep doing this, even though it no longer serves a constructive purpose. So it seems like there is a shift between having them do hard but constructive things to having them do hard and pointless things. That's the way Chazal read it, and I think it's very, I think it's a very powerful um, reading, both um, both uh, narratively and halachically. Okay. Now, Melech Mitzrayim says something to them, Yeldota Ivriot, and they get names, right? Yolo, Shifra, and Pua. Um, and we don't know whether Yeldota Ivriot, right, means the way Chazal generally read it, that it's, um, that these are Jewish midwives, um, which, which explains why they have names, doesn't really explain why they're willing to, right, makes them less heroic if Paro's saying it, right, if it's Egyptian, it was Egyptian uh, midwives, so then they're much more heroic in refusing Paro's orders. Okay, right. So that, that's a whole separate um, issue. And he tells them, "Bialedchen, when you, right, when when you serve as a doula for the or the midwife, whatever, for the Jewish women. So then, take a look and see, right, and see when they give birth on the birthing stool. If it's male, then um, right, then kill him. If it's a, if it's if it's a, if it's a woman, then then um, leave her be. Okay, very very mysterious. We have no idea." Um, we have no idea why Paro makes this distinction t- between uh, men and women. Does he not believe in matrilineal descent? Is he offering, right? Is he trying to offer some kind of incentive for it, right? Why would the midwives go, or maybe the midwives are, right? Don't, midwives are more willing to go along with it if you say only the, only, right? Only the boys, not the girls. Very, very mysterious. Um, what's even more mysterious is the male don't fear God, um, right? And they don't, and they don't do what Paro tells them. And they keep the children alive, and there are no consequences. Paro calls them in and says, why did you do this? And they say, they give him some kind of excuse. Now, again, this, I think, is a parallel to the scene with Bat, with Bat Paro in Perak Bet. And there is an obvious, um, there's an obvious, um, it's an obvious dishonesty, um, but it serves to paralyze Paro. He can't do anything to them. Because right, because there's no formal crime of disobedience to charge them with. They say we're following your orders, but really they're not. Right, really they are part of you know, the resistance. Uh, okay, and um, right, God, God is good to the Mialdot, and once again, right, the people get even. Right, the the nation gets even stronger, even stronger, and God does something nice for the Mialdot. That's not clear what the what the nice thing is for the Mialdot, but you understand the way Chazal read it that one of the Mialdot is Yochevet. And that makes sense, right? So the reward you have to get is that she has Moshe, and these two stories are uh, these two stories are tied together beautifully. And now Paro tells his nation, right? Tells everybody, right? Paro tells him, any son, any any boy who's born, throw him into the river, and any right, and any and any um, daughter who's born, keep alive. Okay, so where what do we see the stages? What are the stages we see of the story, um, and in Paro, right? So. First, Paro doesn't know, right? Paro presumably deliberately doesn't know you're safe. 
he speaks to Amo. We don't know who is um, right, who is right, who this Amo is. Is it everybody in Islam? It doesn't say Kolamo, right? That's why it's important to recognize that when we go later in the story, right? The last scene is Paro says So we go from Vayomer Leamo to Vayitzav Lecholamo. So Paro's relationship with his people changes from speaking to them and speaking to them with a language of where he has to give a rationale. Right, this is what's happening, right? B'nai Israel are getting more numerous than us. Hava, right, let us, right? This is a collaborative, collaborative group. We have to do this, otherwise they will, otherwise they will uh, somehow overpower us. Right? That seems to lead to cooperation by the people, right? By Yasimu Allah Sarem Yasim. The the result of that is that um there are real the it's a successful in terms of the construction projects. There are these giant construction projects finished. Um, but it doesn't work in terms of actually uh, depressing the Jewish birth rate and depressing their role. Right? They just get bigger. They just get bigger and bigger. And so now it seems like the people have joined in. And now we shift. Right? There's a, there's a shift that happens from constructive projects to um, unconstructive projects to really just straight efforts at oppression. Um, but those don't seem to work either. And so now, Melech Mitzrayim, the Silva Yomer, says to the Mieldot, do something, they just disobey him, flat out. And then, right, we have a shift where Paro no longer talks, but he commands. He no longer talks to some people, or just to, right, to specific, right, to two, two Mieldot, right, figure out, right, two Mieldot, right, that's a whole, how do you get two Mieldot for a group, for this vast nation, okay? Maybe they're just the people in charge. Um, um, right, right, he tells them all, and he tells them exactly what to do. And what he tells them to do, all of a sudden now is seems like is very explicitly genocidal. Right? So Para moves from saying, "What are we going to do?" and "What are we going to do?" turns into, "Let's impose very high labor la- labor levies on them, with the intent of, uh, with the intent of oppressing them, and probably, uh, probably depressing their birth rate or right or their." Right, or in some way their participation in society. And by the end, he's moved all the way to uh, what seems to be a genocidal approach. So how does that happen? Right, how do you have a leader who starts, how do you have a leader who starts off um, just raising what seems to be a, possibly a real political issue um, in, which, right, in which he has to persuade to somebody who can order everybody to engage in genocide. Was that his plan all along? We say that, um, right, that from the very moment, right, the plan of the Mel- the plan of the Melchadash was to commit genocide, at least against all the males, right? We get the Haggadah again and the contrast to Lavan, right, where Paro, Paro lo gazar el hazcharim, v'lavan bikesh lakor et uh, right? So we don't really know in the end whether his plan is really genocide, but a Paro who is dealing with a political situation, maybe an insecure Paro, Who's dealing with a political right? Who's dealing with a political situation that could be, to some extent, rationally justified because the Jews are identified with the prior regime. Right? Yosef is the prior regime, uh, right? We right? We could argue right? We have strongly that Yosef is identified with the prior regime. There's a lot of resentment against the prior regime because Yosef was responsible for centralizing power in the hands of Paro and right and removing and ending private land ownership. So the way of right, the way of getting of, of getting rid of that is 
to say, well, really, you know, the problem is not the centralization of power. The centralization of power is necessary because otherwise this minority group is going to, um, right, is going to overwhelm us. And let's figure out how we can resolve that. But that could lead very simply to, right, that could lead very simply to, um, okay, let's just kill all their male, all their, all their male children. But it doesn't. So how do we get from Vayasimu Olav Sarei Misim to Kol HaBenhi Yilodei Oratashlichu? Okay, so that's where I want to take us to Ramban. And let's see how Ramban plays this through. Okay, so now we're on page um, page three of the uh, of the source sheet. Okay, here's what Ramban says. Hava nitchak malo. Let's outsmart them. paro So paro and the right, the wise men who were advising him did not see. So here's Ramban's first interpretational move. He says, right, that's plural. Now, who's the plurality? The plurality is the Pasuk says, he says to his people. So Ramban, right, tells you that what this really means is Paro talking to his advisors. So Paro and his advisors, right, his wise advisors, did not wish to strike the Jews down by the sword. Okay, now Ramban offers three reasons that the, Paro and his advisors did not want to simply say, let's kill all the Jews. Even at the end, we should point out. He never says, let's kill all the Jews. He just says, let's throw all the Jewish children in the, all the Jewish male children in the river. Um, so he doesn't want to, why, why does he not strike them down with a sword? So we could say, he doesn't want to strike them down with a sword because that would uh, decrease their economic contribution, but that is not one of the options that, Benes, that Paro mentions. Here's his first one. It would be an act of great treachery. All right, begida is right is treachery. It's right. It's it's a violation of an expected loyalty. to strike down chinam for no purpose. So chinam is a really important word, right? Because he has a political he has a political um, agenda, but they haven't done anything wrong. Nobody suggests that they have done anything wrong. It's just that even though they've done anything, they've done nothing wrong. He's going to contend that they're um, that they have interests that are different than the interests of his people. But it would be a great treachery, right? To um, right to strike down without cause um, this nation, Asher Ba'ub Aretz, who came into the nation, the Mitzvah Hamelech Harishon, at the command of the prior king. So this is a really interesting claim. Right, um, they came into the land at the command of the prior king. Now, remember, this is the king, Ashurli Yodat Yosef. So, why would a king, Ashurli Yodat Yosef, be constrained by a feeling that he owes them loyalty to, um, right, because it would be an act of great treachery? To purposely, right, to without cause, to causelessly, right, um, attack a nation that came that came in by invitation from the prior king. Um. So, what do you think, right? What is, right, according to Ramban, right? Why, 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 why not? At the end, they're willing to tell you, right? It's not a great treachery to tell people to take this nation that came voluntarily and throw all their throw all their male children in the river. Um, at the end of the day, what's going to have changed, right? Why does why why is it really? So, what do you think? What do you think Ramban is saying here, right? What's the constraint? 
had to figure out how to stop the share. Yes. Uh, not all at once. Okay, I really would. Um, I'm sorry that I'm I'm failing to figure out where the controls are to stop the share, so I can't. Ah, oh, there we are. Okay. Um. Nope. Somebody have an idea? I'll give you a pass on this one, but I'm not gonna. I have idea, I have something to say about it, but let's. But I, we're gonna get more to the point where I really need your help. Okay, so there are two possibilities. I think one of them is offered by Rabbeinu um, Bichaye. Rabbeinu Bechayi says, um, here, um, had the king of Egypt intend, right, wished to strike them, right, wished to strike them down, right, this is the end of the Makar sheet. I'll share again for a minute. Um, okay, right, so Rabbeinu Bechayi says, right, this is, Rabbeinu Bechayi is a, is a, is a com- post-Ramban commentary, he's channeling Ramban. If it's known that if Paro had wished to, to order them killed as one, if Charloza, he could have succeeded in that. But because this was a great, right, a great treachery, that a king should kill his own people, who came to live in his land because of their faith in him, and this would be a, enormously shameful to the king amongst the other nations. Okay, so that is a, right, that's a really interesting thesis, right? So now we have at least, here we have at least um, two different readings. So the, right, the Ramban himself, Ramban himself says, it sounds like, like there's an internal moral control. I can't, right, he just couldn't bring themselves, they don't want to do this. Wow, that would be a really awful thing. There were these people, even though it wasn't our group, but they came to this land voluntarily, ordered, right? You know, under right with a legitimate government, even if we've replaced that government since, and we're going to just kill them, even though we invited them in. So what happens is part of the beginning is morally constrained. Rabbeinu Bechaya, when he's quoting Ramban, doesn't find that plausible, right? Where do we get any notion that Paro is morally constrained in the story? Right? He's not reading. He's not reading the story with a developing character. He thinks the story part was the same at the beginning and end. So we just have to find right. So his answer is that what constrains Paro is well, maybe he thinks maybe it might make sense to say that if that he really identifies with they came in with his authority alimunato. That's kind of weak because they didn't come in alimunato. They came in on the previous Paro. So that's a weakness. So Rabbi Nebuchai has a different thing. He says, maybe what Paro's afraid of is international condemnation. Other people outside this framework are going to condemn Paro if he orders them killed. And they're going to say, what can you, how can you do that? So he has a moral constraint, not because of his own morals, but because of the morals, uh, right? Because he needs to hold up his head, whether for real or for practical purposes with the outside world. Okay. But perhaps the most interesting thesis I'm going to share again for the moment is offered by the tour. The tour is also right, also a, a retelling of Ramban. But right, what is always a fun strategy to look at how people retell and see what changes. So here's what he says: The Lord saw Paro Avadav, Paro and his servants. So that's the first thing he changes. He doesn't see Paro as having real sages or advising him. It's just Paro just has servants. Lakotan Bachar, they don't want to kill him. Why? 
because this will be a great begidah to kill people, this nation, uh, right, without cause, who came to the land, okay, and the tourist, right, the tourist says, and if they had tried that, it wouldn't have worked, because the people wouldn't go along. So, the way the tour understands Ramban is that it's not so much that Paro has a moral development, it's that the or moral de, right, degeneration, it's that he's willing to go as far as the population will let him. And it's not true, right? It's unlike Rabbi Bechaya says they could have done it if they wanted, right? If they, it's known that if he had ordered them, right? Rabbi Bechaya says, right, they could have wiped them out, but he didn't want to because he's afraid of international condemnation. The tourist says, no, he couldn't have done it because the people have an intuition, a moral intuition. And no matter how evil leaders are, they can't go further than the more right than the moral intuition of their population because you can't do anything without you can't do anything less without the unwilling it's really hard to in to impose oppression or mass murder against the will of your own population so the ramban's right so the way the tour understands ramban is that para that we what we're, when we read in this narrative right what we're figuring out is really how paro and his advisors could get from the moment, right, from a moment where they could not tell their people to commit genocide against the Jews, to the point where they could. And the question is, right, so who bears responsibility for that shift? Um, you could say the leaders bear responsibility for that shift because that's what they wanted all along. Or you could say, no, but the people, had the, right, had the people maintained their refusal, then nothing would have happened. So you can try and figure that out of it, right, so what breaks down the people's resistance? It could be force, or it could be that a strategy, right, that a strategy is um, is engaged in that breaks down the moral resistance of the population. And we offered like one way of doing that, you know, that they engage in a sort of deliberately ineffective strategy that nonetheless causes the people, right, causes the people to, um, right, to develop their own, their, their own revulsion. Uh, Ramban tries this approach, now he tries something else. Ramban's, um, right, so the, the tour, I was finishing the tour, the tour um, has a second approach, which is that maybe, um, maybe the reason they couldn't do it initially is that even though Yosef and that whole generation are gone, but B'nai Menashe and Ephraim are still G'dolim and Krovim L'Malchut, right? But early on, there's still a lot of Jewish influence in the government. And it takes a few more generations before that dissipates, right? And so what really happens is just a the gradual the gradual diminution of, even, right? Even people don't remember Yosef, but it takes time to, right, to diminish the influence. Okay, that I think is not such a... Uh, Compelling, um, such a compelling reason. Okay, so let's take a look at Ramban's um, second reason. Ramban's second reason is right, um, as right, really should have, as the tourist says. Well, the tourist, the tourist says he doesn't want to do something this great because it's a treachery. But the second reason Ramban doesn't frame it in terms of the treachery, he says, and just generally, Ramban says, the people would never let the king do something like this. Right, so right, he's he's having right, he's con, he's consulting with them, and the people would never allow this to happen. So this is a really interesting, um, really interesting approach, and um, I guess my answer to it is, um, I wish it were true. I wish it were true. Um, 
it doesn't seem to me to be, you know, I, I don't have a, um, I don't have a faith that democracies don't do enormously evil things. Uh, I think it's you know often valuable to read classical literature, read history. So the story in Thucydides of the Athenian massacre of their former colony Melos is a, a really it's just a really valuable story because Athens is you know in terms of the decision making population among those among the the among the citizens it's a pure democracy, uh, right there right there are slaves but among the citizens of Athens is a pure democracy, and they have a colony. Not of slaves, right? Of their own, right? Of of their um, their own citizens who've gone off to found this colony, who then, right, from their perspective, that colony has committed treachery against them, and the city of Athens votes to massacre them, and sends off its you know its fleet to go massacre them, and they do. Then you know a little bit later they repent, and they send a second ship after the first. They send a second navy after the first navy. Say, please don't massacre them, but it's too late. Massacre has already took taken place. You know, pure democracies don't have any 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 uh, guard against that kind of um, immorality any more than any other kind of side. The notion that there's something intrinsic in a group, right, a group of people in a right, democratic consultation will per se prevent you from engaging in evil, that does not seem to me to be a uh, a compelling explanation. I also, you know, if you read, um, it was very, when I was teaching again, it was a very powerful assembly once with the survivor of the of the Bosnian um, genocide. And you just like, you know, within a space of a year, you go from being neighbors, you know, in an integrated neighborhood to ethnic genocide. Um, you know, and, nope, and there's, there isn't any real resistance. So I, I don't have a belief that per se that works. Um, on the other hand, uh, what you can say is that it doesn't work unless, you know, sometimes the elite is more, is more has moral scruples and sometimes the masses have moral scruples. And you can't get it, let it happen. It doesn't happen unless they agree. So the way we're told in the story is that the story, right, the way Ramban reads it is at the very beginning, the elite do not have these moral constraints, but the population does. And the elites would not have succeeded in doing this unless somehow the population had failed in, right, as opposed to the population playing their intended role, which is they at this point don't begin with it. And they, um, Right, and they, um, right, and they eventually they morally degenerate to the, to the to the position of the leadership. It could have been the other way around. Could have been that they had would have resisted the leadership. Maybe they would rebel, or they trust the leaders would never have gotten to that stage. So you have to figure out how we got to that stage. Okay, and Ramban's third approach is purely pragmatic, and that you know that Paro and the that Paro is trying to cover the strategy, which won't be as, which won't be expensive because in fact, even if the Jews are not really Rabbi Sumi Menu. They're not stronger than us, but they're still a strong enough people that um, you want to avoid. You want to avoid war with them. Okay, so then what does Paro do? So he says, He says you should engage in this. Uh, right, let's do this cleverly, so that the Jews won't understand what is happening to them. Right, so that's Ramban's big read of the story. That the whole what's going on in the beginning is the nitchakma is. Let's do something that the Jews won't realize is aimed at destroying them. So what does he do? He imposes a right. Uh, he imposes this um, heavy labor levy on them, because that's just perfectly ordinary strategy, right? When you have uh, when you have a you know a mass of immigrants, so it was perfectly common then to right to require them to engage in heavy public service, and the proof of that is that's what Shlomo does. Okay, right. So that you know I would argue that 
whenever Shlomo gets compared to Mitzrayim, that is tells you that Shlomo has failed as a king, right? That's a moral failure. But you know, kingdoms fail morally in um, you know, very comparable ways. Okay. All right, that's strategy one. Then Ramban says he tells the Mieldot in secret to kill the, the children on the birthing stool so that even the right, even the women giving birth won't realize it's happening. I don't know if that's plausible or not. And at some point, like if all the children die, you got to realize, but okay, that's his claim. And then he tells all his people, throw all the children, the sons into the river. And here Ramban adds something absolutely fascinating. He says, what did that mean? Throw all the, throw all the sons into the river. He didn't want to tell his Sarei HaTabachim, Zir, you understand when it says butchers, it really means executioners. Right? He didn't want to tell his, right, that we usually translate Sarei HaTabachim as butcher. Um, right? So he didn't want to tell his his executioners to kill the Jews by the sword, with the king's sword. Or even if he doesn't want to kill them with the with the um, with the sword, why not tell why not tell his official you know, gendarmes to throw the Jewish babies into the river? And said, what he says to the people is, If any of you find a Jewish child, well, whenever you find him, throw him into the river. So what will happen if the Jewish father? It's a very patriarchal society. It's only the Jewish father who's going to complain. The Jewish father goes to the king, or El Sarha or to the right, or to the police, and they say, "Hey, this Egyptian there just threw right this Mitzri there. I prefer to use that, right? This Mitzri that just threw my child into the river." Yomru. So what will they say? Shiavi edim viasu bonakama. What we'll tell the, we'll tell the Jewish father. Well, if you bring witnesses. Then we will avenge you. But Paro's telling his people, don't do it in front of witnesses. Just wait, you know, just wait for an occasion when there are no witnesses or when you're the only ones there, right? And you can all alibi, right? You can all alibi each other. And then we'll say, look, this has nothing to do with us. All we're, right, we're carrying out the law. You don't want us to punish people on the basis of inadequate, of inadequate testimony, do you? And so that will work. But what happens is, but when the king's cord was untied, right? Meaning, once the king promised them that the police would not intervene if they did things wrong, so they start doing different things. Right? So the mitzrim would then go, right? Would go, um, right? Case the houses, um, and they would enter there at night. Not all clear what Misnakrin means to me. Suggestions about that are really welcome at the end. Um, right. So then they would, right? They would, they would take the children. They would take the children out um, at night. So this was well. That's why we say she couldn't hide them anymore because Paro's original instructions were just um, were just if right if you find them. But what happens in the end is that they go beyond Paro's instructions and they start actually going into the houses because once you promise people that there are other people who are victims and the police will not intervene if you victimize them, then you can't draw boundaries. You can't say, um, right, you can't say, oh, but that was too far. No, right, you lose your own credibility. You write, now they can testify against you, right? So what, right, so then Ramban says, well, you know what, it stopped after a while. Why did it stop? 
right? So it could be, you know, the answer he says, could be the way Chazal said it, that it stopped because this wasn't actually a direct genocidal approach. It was just an attempt to prevent Moshe from being born. Right? It's an interesting read of the story. Uh, or he has two other possibilities, right? A second possibility, when going backwards, is, you know what? It didn't work once people heard that it was the king doing this. Then he had to stop. There was still at the end a moral constraint. And so we never got past the very heavy labor levy. Really, we just went back, which was horrible and oppressive, but we never got to the point of genocide um, because really the people never went that far. Uh, people never went that far. Once they realized it was coming from the king, so other people protested. It was just a small group of people, right, not representative of the Egyptians, who were um, throwing Jewish children in the river. Um, and Paro knew that, uh, right? even though it says the Cholamo, right? that's the weakness of the story, but it was supposed to still be at least formally unofficial, but it got out because once you, right, when you're trying to run a campaign of um, controlled violence, um, but in order to do that, you say, right, you tell people explicitly that the law won't be enforced against them. So you can't really be surprised when they're, when they act out. And the last possibility is that Batparo, that really what stopped the um, what stopped the Egyptians throwing all the Jews into the river was that Batparo came to him and said, "You just can't do this." And in the end, there was a moral constraint. Right? Paro didn't have any moral constraints at all, but his family was a moral constraint on him. And his daughter said, "Don't do this," and he said, "Well, okay, I can't do it because I want my daughter to love me." Okay, so. Right, so here you have a, a whole series of um, of stories trying to figure out how it is that a um, right. I think what I'm about trying to look how it is that a Paro tells you at the very beginning what his goal is. Uh, his goal is right. His goal is somehow to change the situation where Bnei Israel are Ravi Atzumi Menu, which we don't know whether that's a, a grounded concern, which is just problematic morally, or a paranoid paranoid concern. Um, but his tactics for this change, and but maybe right, maybe Ramban suggests they change, but then they end up be, they end up back at least at the intermediate stage where the Jews are doing avodat parach. Um, so Ramban's theory, I want to argue, is that really you know there are two kinds of constraints: there are internal constraints on Paro, uh, right? His, but really mostly the moral constraints on Paro are what other people think of him, what his peers, other leaders of other nations think of him. Um, what his daughter thinks of him, but mostly, what will what do his people think of him? And his people have different ways of reacting. His people can react by saying, um, "You know what? That's really horrible. We're not going to do that." And Paro can try and do the you know the Stanley whatever his name is the Stanley Milgram experiment at Yale, I guess you know, and try and get people to slowly increase the shocks that they're administering to the people who are marked as victims and see if that works. And maybe it works, and maybe at the end it doesn't work because at some point people wake up and say, oh my God, we're killing people. And he really can't do anything unless, um, you know, because he can't get the people past their initial moral revulsion to murder. Um, or it could be that I think the most powerful reading of Ramban is that there's something about telling people that you're free Right, that you're free, that you somehow you have a position in which you are free from the constraints of government. 
And even people who begin with a uh, people who begin with um, a moral revulsion to something, or at least you know that's a general feeling in the population. But if you release the bounds of law and you say explicitly, you know what, if you do those things, and by the way, if you do those things, then the law is right. Then right. Then the law won't right won't won't hold you comfortable. So you can be under the illusion that that's something you can control. But once you tell people that they're allowed to do bad things and the law won't control them, they'll do worse things. So the question is, how do you resist that? Right? How do you resist that? So the only way you can resist that, it seems to me, is right. All right how could the people ever right? What, if Pharaoh gets up and he tells, he tells everyone, but that right that has right, he, he tells everyone, I'm telling you right now, that I'm not going to enforce the law when victims are Jews. But all I want you to do is to take advantage. I don't want you to take too much advantage of the situation. Just make, right, just make, you know, we're not going to be aggressive, but if you actually do something, right, you know, if you were stupid enough to take a selfie while you're engaging in this, right, so they're not going to, right, so they're not going to have to arrest you because you have witnesses. But if you don't, right, if you don't, if you don't, I'm not going to look very hard for, I look very hard for witnesses. Um, so there's some, right, in that situation, the moral, the moral calculus shifts because all that has to happen then is that there are a lot of people who have to do nothing. Right? They don't have to participate. Right? Right? They're, they're, right? They're, they can still express their moral outrage. They can go, right? They can, right? They can, right? Say this is a really terrible thing. It shouldn't be happening. But obviously, right? You know, that's not their responsibility. It's the police's responsibility. And the police aren't doing anything. Oh, well. So it's a really amazingly subtle tactic. Uh, right, which enables Paro to to move from just imposing you know, sort of you know unequal from unequal protection, uh, you know, the sense of just being able to impose heavier taxes and things like that to actually being able to right to engage in murder, which he engages in a corner Ramban. Right, the way he does it is by relaxing the law, and then maybe maybe even the population maybe maybe you can say Paro had his own constraints; he wasn't going to go that far, but he can't control it anymore because. Once you lose, once you let, let go of the reins of power over particular people with regard to other people, everything is out of control. So the only response to that, you know, is if the people had everyone had gotten up and said, "Then you can't do that, right? We understand, right? You can't do that. You right? You can't in any way, right? Allow the law to apply differently to some people than the others, um, because it's not a question of what we do and don't do. We have to affirmatively make sure that we engage in um, we engage in protection, and so. What happens, in a sense, is that the population is responsible because not just because they do things, and not even necessarily because they shift their um, because they shift their own moral compass, but because they don't see it as their responsibility to ensure that the leader that their leaders are um, actively protecting everybody. Uh, okay, so that's what I want to put out as the you know this is Ramban's reading, I think, um, but you can you know hear. I remember when my friend uh, Nachum Barashansky years ago once wrote a, uh, had a comment about one of my articles, Namavasar, which I have treasured for years, uh, where he said, you, you, were, you were doing X. And I said, no, it doesn't anything like that in the article. And he said, yes, but I could hear the X grinding in the background. All right, so I thought that was a, that was a really good line and entirely fair about that article, that you know, sometimes you write things. Um, I did think I do that not infrequently. You know, I, try and, I try and offer something as what I think is a compelling interpretation of Torah. 
it seems to me that if that interpretation of Torah is, is compelling, then that probably carries implications for real life. But my job is to convince you of the truth of the interpretation of Torah. And, you know, then you can decide if that compels you or not. Um, so I offered a reading of Shmot, which is not exactly the same as Ramban's. Um, right. To me, like the Ramban doesn't mention to me, the huge shift is the shift from when you can tell yourself that you're, you're getting something, they're engaging in constructive work to the point where you're just, where you, where you, where you're explicit with yourself and others that you're doing this right just to express domination. Ramban doesn't focus on that step. He focuses on the step between work and killing. Um, and then Ramban offers his, his hypotheses as to why the shift could happen, right? One possibility is that they had to work themselves up to it. They had to work everyone up to it because if you do things gradually, you know, somehow people's outrage is diminished. Um, another possibility is you have to diminish their power over time so they wouldn't be able to resist. But to me, the most interesting possibility is that Ramban could, is, is that he, right, is that there was a moral constraint from the outset because they had to convince the population to go along because this is not where the population started. Again, not my position, not because populations are always better than elites, but because in that case, the population did not have the same reaction as the elite, as the, as the elite did. And that the way he got there was by the strategy of, <coughs> of allowing people to behave, right, allowing to create the impression that certain people were victims and that, Right, and certain people were privileged, I guess is the right word. I don't know if it's the right word. Um, and that if people in group A did something to people in group B, that you didn't have to worry about police enforcement and then everything got out of control. And so really whose fault is it? It's the leadership's fault for allowing the population. Is it the population's fault for going beyond the leaders? Is it everyone's fault for allowing, right? Because there's the vast, there's the group, the masses, there's the leadership and there's the, the right and there are the bad apples. And it's the fault of the masses because they allow the leaders to do to create a situation in which the bad apples can um, bad apples can behave that way. And the only way to stop it would be if everybody insisted on uh, on maintaining a government that treated everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.